Lord, what a great day. What a great day. Lord, we praise you that we have this opportunity to come together, to open your word, to study, to be really drenched with the truth of what this day is a celebration of, that you raised Jesus from the dead. Lord, we uh, praise you for his offering. We praise you for him willingly going to the cross when it should have been us to pay the penalty for our sins. And we praise you for this day when you raised him from the dead, making all manner of things possible, proving all manner of things that we will talk about today and that we will praise you for forever. Lord, I pray this morning as we open your word, as we uh, are here on this great day, it's raining outside, uh, but it's not in here. And uh, the sun has risen, and we praise you for that. I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified this morning. I pray that you would be lifted up, that uh, my words would be honoring to you and and lift you up, would be encouraging, would be uh, challenging, and would be truth from your word. I pray for each of us that our hearts would be open to what you have to say to us. I pray that uh, our ears would be tuned in to hear uh, what the Spirit says. Lord, I pray that this would be a morning of uh, rejoicing and even rejoicing in new life. Um, Maybe uh, some here this morning don't know you and need to hear the truths of the gospel maybe for the 50th time. But I pray that by your spirit you would move in this place, work in our hearts, be lifted up. I pray that you would receive all the praise and all the glory for this day. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it is Resurrection Sunday. It's a very special day, okay? And the idea of resurrection, even in the Bible, doesn't start at the end of the Gospels. It goes way, way back, way back. If you'll, if you'll open to Genesis chapter 3, we're not going to spend a lot of time there, but I want to show you something, that even in Genesis chapter 3 already, this is way back in the beginning. This is the curse. We're going to look at verse... Well, verses 14 and 15. Remember the serpent came into the garden, tempted Eve, and the result is what we have around us, right? Man fell into sin, and it was uh, from the temptation from the serpent. And so the Lord God said to the serpent in verse 14, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and here's where we get to it, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, we don't see the word resurrection in there, but it's in there. It's in there. That truth is being proclaimed even all the way back in Genesis 3.15, the first giving of the gospel, in a sense. We hear this idea that the the seed of the woman, offspring of the woman, who will ultimately be Christ, will crush the head of the serpent, and he will be bruised on his heel. You can recover from a bruised heel, but you're not going to recover from a crushed head, right? And so we see that there's something God is going to do that's very special. And we see ultimately, when we get to the New Testament, we see that it is resurrection. So that idea is already there way back in the beginning, that God is going to do something very special. Um, but in order for us to get the full picture, because it goes 
back earlier than that, actually. It goes back to the beginning when God was forming, however that worked for him, I don't know, when he had his plan for how things were going to go, what he was going to do with creation, he already had this in mind. You see, God, according to the Bible, is eternal. He has always existed as he is now. He's always existed in the past, he exists in the present, and he will always exist in the future. He's unchanging. That is who the God of the Bible is. He is always and has always been and will always be the same. He is eternal. And not only is he eternal, but he's also holy. That means he is completely separated from sin. That he, he himself has no sin, and sin cannot remain in his presence. He is a holy God. And then he is our creator. He's the one who made us. We weren't formed by some explosion in time. We were formed by eternal holy God deciding he was going to speak us into existence. And we see that at the beginning of Genesis chapter 1. So this is who God is. He is eternal, he's holy, and he is our creator. He is our creator. That means he gets to call the shots for us, right? That means he has authority, ultimate authority over us. Well, so then... Man comes on the scene. God decides he's going to create man. So he makes man, and we have that happening in Genesis 1, Genesis 2 more fully. And man is to be God's representative on the earth. When it says he's, man is created in the image, he's created to image or as the image, as the representative of God on the earth. And there's a whole lot to that. But uh, just, just as that, that's who we've been created to be, is to be God's image bearers in this world. It's a very special relationship. And man, when he was created, was sinless, and he was perfectly, rightly related to God. The Bible says they used to walk together in the garden in the cool of the day. That's intimate relationship. They were perfectly and rightly related to one another. The man, uh, mankind, was sinless. Adam and Eve were sinless. Well, then the story that I alluded to there with the serpent coming into the garden, tempting Eve, well, they fall into sin. And all of a sudden, they're in rebellion against God. And whereas there used to be this perfect relationship and harmony between God and his creation, mankind, now there's a break. There's some sort of separation. Uh, man falls into sin. And there's this separation uh, resulting in their relationship. So the next time God comes to walk with them in the, in the cool of the day, Adam and Eve run and hide. There's a break. They'd never done that before. There's a break. There's separation in their relationship. And he had told them this would be a form of death, spiritual death, spiritual separation from God. And so that is the situation with man. He's God's representative on earth, created sinless and in right relationship. They fall into sin and all of a sudden there's a break. There's a break in that relationship. There's separation between them. And that's called spiritual death. Well... This isn't a shock to God. I said he's always existed and he will always exist. He's unchanging. He had a plan. And this wasn't plan B. This was his design. He decided what he was going to do was send the second person of the Trinity, the Son, his Son, Jesus Christ, who is also God. He is not the Father, but God uh, is Father, God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit. The second person of the Trinity, His Son, um, He decides to send Him to earth 
He's eternal God, sends him to earth to take on flesh like you and me so that he is perfectly God, but then he comes to this earth and he becomes perfectly man. He's just like us, fully human, only he's sinless. He doesn't have this sin nature, this this desire to sin, this want to, this propensity to sin. And he lives a sinless life on this earth, always obedient to God, always walking in God's commands. And then he willingly goes to the cross. And that's what we celebrated just a couple of days ago on Good Friday. He willingly goes to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, not for his own. He didn't have any sins to pay for. He was sinless. He was in perfect right relationship with God, always had been. And he willingly went to the cross to take my sin, the punishment for my sin. Remember what what sin causes between us and God? Separation, break, spiritual death. There's separation there because of my sin. He steps in and decides to pay for that. And he willingly goes to the cross on our behalf. There's something special and unique about Jesus. There are many things special and unique about Jesus. The one I want to talk about right now is the fact that he is the only possible substitute for us to pay for our sins. Because the debt he owed is infinite. Because the sin against an infinite God makes an infinite debt. Now, can we pay an infinite debt? No. We are not infinite. One thing we know about ourselves is that we are finite. We have limits. The debt we owed was infinite. So the only one who could possibly pay an infinite debt is an infinite substitute. And Jesus is the only one. Because he is fully God, he is infinite and can pay that. Now, he's also fully man, so he can relate to us. He can take our debt. He can take our punishment. He's a fitting substitute for us because he's fully man. And he's fitting also because he's sinless. And so he's the only possible substitute to pay for our sins is Jesus himself. And that's what we celebrated on Good Friday just a couple days ago. Now, the question remains, how do we know whether God accepted that offering? How do we know that the substitution was valid? Well, resurrection provides, number one, proof of justification. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 4 in the New Testament, Romans chapter 4. The resurrection provides proof of justification. Now, there's a lot here, and I'm going to be going to various different passages today, and I'm going to be reading excerpts. I wish I could develop more fully and in a larger way some of these arguments, but I'm going to hit on a few. I want to focus on a few things about justification that I want us to take away from today, all right? Verse 25, talking about Jesus. It says, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, point A there in your outline. For that, I want to read from a prophecy written hundreds of years before the event happened. Hundreds of years beforehand. 
This prophecy is found in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Let me just read it to you, and I'll move on. Again, this is written hundreds of years before he was born. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was delivered for our trespasses. He was crucified, and the point was to pay the penalty for our sins. He offered himself up as a sacrifice to take our place. But the question still remains, how do we know whether God accepted the offering? Let's look back at Romans chapter 4, verse 25 again. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, what in the world is justification? Normally, when we use the term, we use it in the, in the means of, like, uh, in, with this meaning, that I do some action that is questionable, but I try and justify it before you, make it sound good, like it was a good thing, right? I did this thing, and it, you know, but yeah, I have reasons where uh, I try and make you believe that it was actually a good thing that I did. I justify that action. Well, it's, a re- it's the same word, and it's a related concept, but biblically speaking, here's what justification is. It's a legal act whereby God declares that our sins are forgiven because of Christ. He declares that we now have Christ's righteousness applied to our account, and he declares that, therefore, we are just or righteous before him. So it's a legal act whereby he declares those things. There's a situation going on, a problem that we have, One of the problems that we have is that we have sin. So if you imagine like a bank account, and this gets a little dangerous later on. We'll we'll clarify this later on. But imagine it's like a bank account, okay? And let's say I start out at zero. I don't. And biblically speaking, I start out in the negative already. But my sins contribute negatively or they, they detract, right? And I have this ever worsening situation where I got this huge negative debt, this debt of sin that I've got to pay. Okay, so Jesus goes to the cross and he pays that debt. Well, if someone wipes out your debt, where does that leave your bank account? Zero. You're still at zero. Now, in order to be in the presence of righteous, holy God, not zero doesn't cut it. We have to be righteous. And so there's a second part of what happens here. That second part of justification is where God looks at Christ and Christ's righteousness He takes that from him and applies that to us. Imputed righteousness, it's called. And so we are made, declared to be righteous in God's sight because of what Christ has done. So back to our weak analogy of the bank account. He forgave our sins, wiped out our debt, so that we're back up to zero, and then he piles on tons on top. That's imputed righteousness. Okay, perfect righteousness because of what Christ has done. And then ultimately, God looks at that that our sins have been wiped away, the negative has been wiped away, the positive of Christ's righteousness has been added to us, and he says, therefore, you are declared righteous in my sight. That's what justification is. That's my, my quick definition this morning for justification. 
So, the question remains, how do we know if God actually considered that transaction to be legitimate? Verse 425 says, He was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In the language of the guy that we watched on the screen, the check cleared. He paid the price and God accepted the payment. We have evidence of that by the fact that he raised Jesus from the dead. The fact that God raised Jesus to new life after all the sin of the world had been placed on him is evidence that God accepted the substitutionary payment. He accepted the deal. The check cleared. That means believers really have been declared righteous before God because of what Christ has done. There is no question about it. Jesus' resurrection proves that God accepted the offering that Jesus made for our sins. And therefore, we can now stand before God justified and righteous because of what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. But there's even more that God accomplished when he raised Jesus from the dead. He gave, number two, the gift of spiritual life. The gift of spiritual life. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, just a little bit later on. And again, there is so much here. But I think the argument that he develops here is so clear. I'm going to read... I'm going to read all of verses 1 through 10, okay? So buckle up, hang with me. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Writing to the Ephesian church, the Apostle Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were spiritually dead in our sins. We actively followed the course of the world. We actually followed Satan, the prince of the power of the air. He was our leader. We lived in the passions of the flesh, doing whatever our sinful nature wanted and whatever our twisted mind could think up. We were dead and we were the objects of God's wrath, but God. We were those kinds of people, but God. We were his enemies, but God. We were dead, but God made us alive. His mercy is so deep toward us and his love is so great toward us that he raised believers to eternal life when he raised Jesus from the dead. His mercy here 
means that he withheld the punishment that we rightly deserved. His love here means that he did what was best for us, regardless of the impossibly high price that he paid. His grace means that he looked upon us with favor when we deserved exactly the opposite. His grace means that he gave us this enormous and awesome gift and we didn't deserve it. He made us alive when we were dead. We were spiritually separated and alienated from God. And he took the resurrection of Christ and he applied it to us to heal that separation and to eliminate that alienation. He made us alive together with Christ. Amazing. Amazing. God in his rich mercy acted because he loved us so much. Just like he raised Jesus from death, he likewise made us spiritually alive. And now that we are spiritually alive, we have a living hope. Living hope. I know we're moving fast. Move over to 1 Peter. Keep going later in your Bible, past Hebrews. 1 Peter, past Hebrews, past James. This is amazing. 1 Peter chapter 1, a living hope. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. He says here we've been born again. A new spiritual life has begun that replaces the old spiritual death that we were under. There's a lot here. There is a lot here. I want us to notice just a few things here that this living hope uh, brings in, in believers. First of all, I want us to notice that it's, it's the hope of eternal life. It's hope for life that doesn't end at death on this earth. It's a hope of life, this living hope. Second of all, it's a hope that is living and it's active in my life. It's living and it's active in my life. Each new day, this hope reminds me that because God raised Jesus from the dead and because I am in Christ, God will also raise me from the dead. And I get to be with him perfectly forever in heaven. This is what Peter calls in these verses an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This hope that is alive in me also spurs me on to continue to trust in Christ in each new difficulty, each new hardship, each new painful life situation I find myself in. This hope is alive and working in me to produce even more hope in me. This new hope that believers have because of the resurrection of Christ is a living one that encourages us and challenges us in our lives again and again, and again. It's a day-after-day day thing. It's living. It's not 20 years ago. It's not 10 years ago. It's living. It's renewed. It's again and again. 
When God raised Jesus from the dead, he also made it so that his children would be taken from spiritual death and into spiritual life. He made it so that those without hope would be reborn to a new and a living hope. And as we will see next, the resurrection also provide, provides, number three, freedom from sin's dominion. Freedom from sin's dominion. Look back to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Now, I want to look at three different verses, but I'm going to look at them in reverse order. Because of the way the logic flows in his argument, I think it's clearer to us if we look at them start at the end of the argument and go forward, okay? So what I want to look at is Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Then look up at verse 11. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Then look up at number 4, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life. We are no longer under the authority of sin and of the law. So let's stop bowing the knee to sin in our lives as if we were powerless against it. The believer is dead to sin. He's alive to God instead. That's the newness of life that the Bible's talking about here. We don't have to obey sin anymore. We are alive to God now, and we can choose to obey Him instead. We were slaves to sin and death and the law, but we have been set free to serve and to love and to worship God instead. Now, there's another way that's talked about here in which we walk in newness of life that I want to hit on. We don't live under condemnation anymore. When we shout, He is risen indeed, in the back of our minds should be, the price has been paid. The price has been paid. We are not under law as if we are able to earn some favor or anything from God. We are the recipients of God's grace in Jesus Christ. We are not under law. The price has been paid. We live from a right relationship with God. We don't live to obtain a right relationship with God. We live from a right relationship with God. Not to obtain a right relationship with God. As if we can merit a right relationship with God because of our lives. The price has been paid. We have been raised with Christ from the dead. Sin's power over us is canceled. We are dead to sin. We are dead to the law. We have an entirely new way of life. The price has been paid. So, Colossians 3 would say, seek the things that are above. Let her be there. Let's uh, flip over, since we're right here in Romans, let's look at Romans 6. Verse 12, and then we're going to flip over to Colossians. Romans 6, verse 12 says, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. And then real quick, Colossians 3, 
and verse 1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So Romans 6 says, Don't let sin reign. Its power over you has been canceled if you are in Christ. It's no longer in a position of authority over you. So don't grant it that authority anymore. And then Colossians 3 puts it another way. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. God's children have been given a new life, a new walk. That means that freedom from the old death and slavery to sin and self-merit that we lived under. Let me say that again. We have been given a new life, a new walk. And so this new walk means freedom from the old death and slavery to sin and self-merit that we lived under. Why would we ever want to return to that way of life? Why would you ever want to return there? Instead, let us see Christ and heavenly things that are consistent with this new life. And this brings us to a fourth truth about the resurrection. That power is at work within us. Power at work within us. So turn back to Philippians, just one book earlier than Colossians. Philippians chapter 3. I know we're moving fast. Hang with me. Hang with me. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. Paul is talking here who had every religious credential you could imagine. And he said, I count them all as lost, as loss, as uh, not good thing, like I'm trying to move away from those things. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. He counted all of that stuff, all of his religious credentials as garbage, as loss, so that he might know Christ and know the power of his resurrection in his own life. Instead of continuing to rely on his credentials, on his powers, on his abilities, on his background and all of that, he wanted to rely entirely instead upon God's strength and upon his power. He wanted to see the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead work in his own life. And so he set all of that credential stuff aside. And he decided he wanted to live trusting in Christ's resurrection power instead. He wanted to step out and obey God in ways that were beyond him. In ways that only God's resurrection power in his life could make possible. That's the way he wanted to live. Christians can know the power that raised Christ from the, the power that raised Christ from the dead. Think about that. That is power. And again, this... Jesus wasn't just revived or resuscitated or something like that. He was fully dead, and he wasn't just placed back into this fallen life like we are, where his body would be susceptible to sin or to, to death, to weakness, to those things. That wasn't the kind of resurrection that he had. Not like Lazarus. Lazarus died again. Jesus was raised to new life. To new life. That is power. And Paul wanted to see that power at work in his life. And Christians can see that. They can see it at work in them as they stop trusting in their own strength, in their own abilities, in their own credentials, and all of that, in their own merit. And as they start taking God at His word, 
that He alone is their strength and He alone is their righteousness. When a person begins to understand that, that truth and begins to live his life believing that truth, God will work in his life with an immeasurably great power. Immeasurably great power. Flip over to Ephesians. Back one book again to Ephesians 1. I just want to read this. This is another of Paul's descriptions of the same power. That same power. He's praying for the Ephesian believers. He's praying all kinds of things for them. And in verses 19 and 20, he prays for them. He wants them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He's praying that they would know that. And he says it's an immeasurable might, an immeasurable power. It's incomprehensible. It's limitless. It is divine power of God at work. And Paul is praying for them that they would see that, that they would know what that is and that that power of God is available to make them alive. Not just to be born again, for sure that, but ongoing power in their lives. Just like he said earlier that he wanted to know that power in his own life. He didn't just want to live to the limit of his abilities. He wanted to live in such a way that he would see God's resurrection power at work in his life. That's how he wanted to live. And he calls it immeasurably great power. In conclusion, when God raised his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead, he defeated death itself and he defeated sin itself. He demonstrated to the world that he counted Jesus' offering as acceptable. And he considered the debt that you and I owed as paid in full. He gave proof that we can truly be justified before a holy God when he raised Jesus from the dead. When God raised his son Jesus Christ from the dead, he gave spiritual life to his children, along with a new and a living hope in this life and in the life to come. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he provided freedom from sin's tyranny and from any demands that we work to merit God's favor. He provided freedom from that when he raised Jesus from the dead. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he made that same resurrection power available to his children. His unimaginably awesome resurrection power at work in our lives to will and to work for his good pleasure, it says in another place. Now, if you've not already been raised with Christ, I pray that this Resurrection Sunday in 2013 would be the day that you are raised up with him. Turn from trusting in your own strength and trusting in your own merit, trusting in your own righteousness. Trust instead in the incomparable work of Christ on the cross. He's already accomplished what you could never accomplish. Trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross for eternal life and be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's my prayer for you this morning, and that's my encouragement. It was uh, 21 years ago this last week that I was born again to a new and living hope. And I pray that there will be many this morning who will also be born to that same hope. 
So if the men who are going to sing would come forward, let me pray for us. Lord God, I thank you for your word and I thank you for raising Jesus from the dead. I thank you that death was no uh, bar to you, was not too much for you. I thank you that conquering sin was not impossible for you. I thank you that you accepted the payment that Jesus made so that we could be made right with you because of what Jesus has done, not because of something that we had to earn or some hoops we had to jump through or something like that. So I praise you and I thank you for this morning and I pray, Lord, that we would uh, rejoice that such an offer has been made to us, that such a God exists and he loves us and does so much to know us. So, Lord, I pray that you would receive glory this morning and, uh, Lord, that many would uh, think about this, would ponder and think about this, uh, this uh, offer that you make, this incredible resurrection power that you use to accomplish so much. So, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.